0: let's pray holy God gracious God and merciful God we thank you for your word we thank you that you're sovereign over all this morning through the message work in our hearts work ever greater faith ever greater love of Christ Jesus all by your grace and mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During Pentecost, we talked about what is it for a church to move from being a clubhouse to a lighthouse? A church that gives light unto the world. I mean, this is what Jesus talked about in the gospel message today. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what does that mean, though? To be a light unto the world. It means that each of us individually, individually, and then together as a body are to be the light of Christ for our friends, our family, our neighbors, that we are to be that light. We're to be the light for those who are lost, who are in darkness and despair, to help them see the light of Christ Jesus. And we we pray about that every week, right? We pray about that every week. We're to be a light for those who need a safe harbor, a place of refuge, a place to be restored. We need to be the light of the love, the grace, the mercy of God for us in Jesus. This is the call for you and for us as Joy Church to be a light unto the world, and what a good call it is. We are called to be that. We are called to be a lighthouse for our friends, our families, our neighbors, this community. But there are certain things that you need to know about being a lighthouse. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it means to be a lighthouse by relaying a story. Now, this story's been around a long time. And it takes place before all the radar and all the electronics. It takes place with a battleship that was on an exercise in a very bad, bad storm. And during the storm, the lookout saw on the starboard side a light. And so the, star, the, the lookout reported this to the captain. And the captain said, is it moving And the the lookout said, no, it's stationary. That meant they were on a collision course. So the captain told the lookout, you need to tell that light, that ship out there, to move 20 degrees. So the uh, lookout signaled to the other ship, change course 20 degrees, we're on a collision course. The signal came back, advisable for you to change course. The captain signaled, I am the captain, change course 20 degrees. The reply came back, I'm a seaman second class, you change course. The captain said, I'm a battleship, change course. The reply came back, I'm a lighthouse, your call. (laughs) See, a lighthouse does not compromise its position, does it? It can't. It is built on solid rock. It cannot move, no matter how fierce the storms are. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of lighthouses where it's just being battered by a hurricane, a gale, or even frozen snow and ice and wind, everything. But the lighthouse is still there, no matter the conditions, shining the light, giving safe harbor to people. In the same manner, you and I need to be that light to the world, to stand on the bedrock, the solid rock of Christ. That's why we sang the first song, standing on the solid rock of Christ Jesus, no matter how we are battered. And we cannot compromise our faith, no matter how much pressure we're under by family, friends, or even People in government positions, we cannot compromise our faith because when we do, we are no longer a lighthouse. So today we're going to spend some time in the book of Daniel. I think you're going to be amazed how many things correlate directly to what's happening today, even though it was written over 2,600 years ago. I mean, there were so many connections, I had to kind of weed them out because there would have been, it was just been too many. So we're going to spend some time in Daniel, an uncompromising faith. And this morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 1, three main points. God is in control. Do not compromise under pressure. And God will bless and equip those who are staying true to his word. Okay? So the first part is God is in control. We're going to take a look at Daniel, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. And by the way, Jim did a great job on all those names. I'm sure all of you were thinking, I'm glad I wasn't reading today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of God and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. So as always, context is important, right? If we were doing a Bible study, I'd go much more into the dates, the timeline of some of the battles, the Kings, but that's way too much to try to take in into a sermon. So I'm going to give you a broad brush overview of the context. And it is this for a long, long time, The Israelites were involved in idolatry, worshiping other gods, immorality, and injustice. And the prophets were warning Israel about the impending fall of being captured. I mean, just read Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are blistering chastisement of the nation of Israel for all of the things that they were doing against God's word and will. Take a look at Jeremiah, Micah, other prophets. They were talking about how bad Israel got. And God was going to discipline them by letting them fall, be captured. That was the warning. And so, and actually 605 BC, and by the way, historians can even narrow that down. They say in May or June, so this time frame... In 605 B.C., the nation of Judah, last tribe of Israel, fell, was taken captive by the Babylonians. Now, to the faithful Israelites, I'm sure this was devastating. I mean, Israel, Judah, was taken over by the Babylonians who had all of the pagan gods, all the superstitious rituals, and during that time, when your nation was taken over by another nation, it was seen as, an, as something that their God was more powerful than your God. It would have been devastating. But if you read the text carefully, what does Daniel say? Daniel says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So it wasn't that the Babylonians were that strong, or Judah was that weak. It's that the Lord let this happen. Now, I've talked about the word Lord, right? In the Old Testament, when you see it in all capital letters, it means Yahweh. It's the covenantal name for God. But if you take a look at our reading today, in your Bible, in Daniel chapter 1, take a look at it. It says, Lord, not all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, small case on the O-R-D, that actually is another name for God. And that name is Adonai. And it is properly translated as Lord. The meaning of this is that someone who has power or authority, someone who is a master or ruler, someone who is sovereign. So it was the Lord Adonai, sovereign God, who ordained this. Who ordained what people thought was devastating and that they could never come back from. And in dire situations, it looks like God has forgotten us, right? God isn't isn't in control anymore, but God is always in control. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph was sold in slavery, actually he was left to die, and then sold into slavery to the Egyptians, his brother sold him, or his brother sold him. But at the very end, Joseph becomes, in essence, second in command in the Egyptian empire. And he says this to his brothers who had betrayed him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. No matter how dire the circumstances, God is in control and working things according to His word, His will, His good. And I have to tell you right now, when you take a look at America, when you take a look at Christianity, you would think that we are crumbling, if not overtaken, just like Babylonian took over Judah. I mean, you take a look at the rise of all of the things regarding gender. You take a look at critical race theory and how that's doing all sorts of things. You take a look at the rise of paganism. And even, and I want to, I, I don't know if you know this one, but even Satan, who's the prince of all of this evil, is rising up and not even trying to hide anymore. In Phoenix, there's a Satanist organization. And not long ago, just a couple months ago, they put a billboard in Phoenix with a Satan logo on the billboard, and they were bragging how their religious rituals can get around any abortion law. As a matter of fact, on other billboards I've seen that they put up, they say, uh, abortion saves lives. I mean, this is, do you understand, this is the rise, this is the blatant aspect of what's happening in our culture today. And it's really easy to be discouraged and think, has God abandoned us? But God, Adonai, is sovereign and is always in control. And we must not compromise our faith, no matter how much pressure there is. And so we're going to get in the second section here, do not compromise under pressure. All right, starting in verse 3. Then, then the king commanded Eshpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature of the Chaldeans Chaldeans so when nebuchadnezzar captured another country they would bring captives back to babylon now babylon was a center of excellence in a number of things they were a center of excellence in military strategy They were a center of excellence when it came to math, when it came to building things. They excelled, and all of this takes education, doesn't it? So they had a wonderful library. Now, you and I, and today, we think, well, it's a library, and a lot of people don't even use libraries. But back then, a library was a big, big deal. That was a center of a knowledge of excellence, of learning. One commentator said this, the king's policy, was to train the best people of the conquered nations to serve in his government. He could benefit from their knowledge of their own people and could also use their skills to strengthen his own administration. So the king wanted people to come back, and he would train them, and so thus they could be pawned, so to speak, in his empire that he was expanding. Now, it's pretty interesting that the youths talked about in Daniel were of royal lineage. And was this a coincidence A coincidence that they were of royal lineage? Actually, I don't think so. If you take a look at Isaiah chapter 39, remember Isaiah's prophesying about the fall of Israel? It says this, Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So here are the youth, the royal youth, even predicted by Isaiah, that would be taken to Babylon. And eunuchs, uh, in a narrow sense, were males who were castrated. But in the broader sense, this means that they were basically servants of, of the king. So in this case, think servants of the king. So these youth who became adults were ultimately pressured in many different ways to compromise or abandon their beliefs. There are three areas of pressure that we're going to talk about. Uh, The first two, I'm indebted uh, by Kent Hughes for sparking some ideas. So let's talk about these three areas of pressure. There's a pressure to change our thinking. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Think about it. You had these youths who were taken out of their homeland, plunked down into a foreign country and now they were to be steeped in the language, the literature of Babylon. Babylon had all these pagan gods, these pagan rituals, these superstitious acts. And they were pressured just by learning all of the literature to leave their faith and take on the thinking of the Babylonians. By essence, to leave Judaism behind and now become a pagan. So they were in school for three years. I hope you can start to draw the the point already. Is that our school system now, in many ways, is no longer learning... It has become centers for indoctrination. And it is, I mean, you see the clash right now, right, with the critical race theory, huge clash on that. But the, the indoctrination of sexuality and gender has been working through the school system for a long time. I mean, what evil is it to start to talk to kindergartners, first, second, third graders about, well, what gender are you? So it has become an area of indoctrination. But it's not just for the youth, right? It is also adults who are feeling this pressure. There is one teacher who recently spoke up, and he was suspended. And this just happened. He was suspended because he wouldn't use any particular gender that the students wanted. So this is from an article. Byron Tanner Cross... A physical education teacher at Leesburg Elementary School in Leesburg, Virginia, said during a May 25th, right, just happened, a May 25th public meeting that recognizing a student's gender identity, if different from their sex assigned at birth, goes against his religious beliefs. I love all of my students, but I will never lie to them regarding the consequences, Cross said. I'm a teacher but I serve God first, and I will not affirm that a biological boy can be a girl and vice versa because it goes against my religion, said Cross, who says he is a Christian. It's lying to a child. It is abuse to a child, and it's sinning against our God. Now, there's more and more stories that could be told, but Christians are pressured into thinking and leaving behind their faith, thinking different ways. There's also a pressure to change who we worship. So verse 6 through 7 here. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ariziah, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, and I should have Jim do this right now. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So, for those of you who grew up on Daniel, you know those last three pretty well. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. You kind of want that on a biblical trivia quiz, right? It's like, oh, I know that one, I know that one. But do you know why the change of names is important? See, you start to peek under the covers here, and it's just not a random change of names. There are definite implications here, so let's go through them here. Daniel is, his name means Elohim is my job, is my judge. Elohim, is a name, the Hebrew name for God. Belt, Beltezar, now I'm just going to mess up, so I'll just do it. May Bel protect his life. Bel is a pagan god of Babylon. Hananiah, Yahweh, is gracious. Shadrach, Aku, is exalted. So there's another pagan god. Mishael, who is what Elohim Elohim is. That means, who is like God? And Meshach means, who is what Aku is? I mean, do you see how they're literally changing their names? And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, Abednego, the servant of Nebo. So this is literally changing their names to change their identity, who they worship. You can see why, by the way, that teacher who got suspended wouldn't go along with using whatever gender pronoun they wanted because ultimately... That changes their identity apart from God, who created us male and female, and into some other pagan God. So there is a pressure to change who we worship. There is also a pressure to reject God's word and will. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel, in essence, drew a line in the sand. He wouldn't eat the king's food or drink the wine, not because the king's food was bad. It was probably some of the best food around there, or not that he was a vegetarian or a teetotaler. He would not eat or drink the food from the king or the wine because he didn't want to defile himself. So what does that mean? How would he defile himself? Well, there are two ways. One is that he would ceremoniously be unclean. Ceremonially be unclean before God, and that it meant also that he would be honoring pagan gods. So how would he be ceremonially unclean? Well, it would be that he would be eating food that God said is unclean. You know, in our modern mind, we think kosher, right? The Jewish eat kosher. There are certain laws and regulations about having meat in which the blood must be completely drained out. You can't eat pork. You can't eat shellfish. I mean, there are things like that. But Daniel wasn't doing that just because of tradition. He was saying, this is what God, Yahweh, the sacred God of the covenant, has commanded us. I need to honor him in how I eat. But the other part was, is that the wine, the food of the king, a portion of it would be offered to a pagan god. And Daniel knew this. And there was no way he was going to partake of food that had been offered up to a pagan god. Now, some of us might think, well, the food, what the big deal? But if I said, well, I'm giving you food today that has been first offered up to the spirit, of Hitler. Would you eat that food? You wouldn't, would you? Because that would be an awful thing to do. You would feel, I'm sure you would feel defiled. So Daniel did not want to defile himself and to refuse what the king had commanded was not just a little thing. It could actually put him to death. It could put his friends to death. It could put the chief of the eunuchs to death as well. I mean, when you read the text, the chief of the eunuchs is worried about literally losing his head. Daniel had a faith there was a line in the sand that he would not compromise. So for you this morning, where is your line in the sand? Where's your line in the sand with your faith? Let me give you an example of where I, at one time, drew a line in the sand. So, before I became a pastor, I worked in corporate America. And just a couple of years before I became a full-time pastor, I worked at a smaller company in the medical industry. And I was in training and development, a, a teacher in a business setting. And it was my job to help put on workshops... So, the head of HR wanted to do this workshop on team building for the company. And the gimmick was, for this team building, was that at the end of a two-day workshop, your team would have completed a song, written a song, that would then be played by professional musicians. Kind of cool, right? But the other part of this is that you would also take a personality indicator test. And mostly personality indicators put you in one of four boxes. You know, are you introvert, extrovert? Are you uh, fly by the seat of your pants? Are you planful? Do you think in a linear manner or are you just more intuitive? You you got all that, right? And as part of the gimmick, because it was, I think they called it band camp, uh, your personality was then indicated by a singer. So there was like Frank Sinatra, and I, I forget, I'm going to guess command and control or something, who knows. But there was also Jimmy Buffett, who was, you know, laid back, easy. Uh, I like to be a little bit more planful in how I do things. And so I got into a category, and the singer was Lady Gaga. <laughs> or as I like to call her, Lady Gaggag. You see, she stands for all of the Babylonian uh, religions that are around. I mean, it's awful what, from a Christian point of view, what she stands for. And during this time, for her live performances, she would also swallow multi, multicolored liquids during, right before the performance. And then during the performance, she would actually purposefully vomit on somebody in her band, in the group, and they were covered in this multicolored vomit. And she called that art. And here I was. You see, during this whole two-day thing, I was to wear a placard that had her picture on it. This was a line in the sand for me. I would not promote her whatsoever. So I went to my boss, who was the head of HR, and I explained, I I wasn't angry, but I explained, I could not do this. Not only was it just disgusting what she was doing, but it went against my religious beliefs. And I was willing to lose my job over it. Thankfully, I didn't, and he worked out another arrangement but we all have to have a line in the sand. Daniel had one. I've had many different lines in the sand before. Where's your line in the sand where you will not compromise your faith? So for us here, if you compromise your faith in following Jesus, his word and will, you will not be salt or light to the world. You're going to be pressured and you probably already are pressured into not only thinking differently, but at least being silent in the world. And if you're silent and just withdrawn, you can neither be salt nor light. And if certainly if you compromise, you can't and won't be salt or light. And Jesus said, This, you are a salt of the earth, but if salt lost its taste, then in essence, salt has become compromised. How shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer is, it can't. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Daniel would not compromise his faith. And you have to remember, during this time, Daniel was a teenager. He was maybe 13, 14, 15, probably at the most. But he has, was rooted enough in his faith by his family, by his growing up, that he would not turn his back on his Lord and Savior. So God is in control, right? Do not compromise your faith even under pressure. And know that God will bless you and equip you when you are true and faithful unto him and his word. I'm not talking about perfect faithfulness because none of us can be perfect faithfulness, but as long as we are by the power of the Holy Spirit being true to his word in our life, God will bless you and equip you. So, verse 12 and I'm going to read through 15. Test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth eat the king's food. Uh, who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So Daniel said, there was a line in the sand, rather than stage a protest, rather than occupy Babylon, rather than to do the cancel culture thing, he simply calmly went to the chief of the eunuchs and said, okay, let me just eat the vegetables and water for 10 days, things that are not offered uh, or given by the king's food. Again, it wasn't because he was a vegetarian or a teetotaler. It's so he wouldn't defile himself. And that's the main point. He was being true to God's word because there are a lot of people who take this section in Daniel and then also a fast that Daniel did. Have you ever heard of Daniel's fast? Yeah, there's a whole thing out there. If you Google it, you'll find Daniel's fast and it's about how to eat fruit and vegetables and thus lose weight. But (laughs) i got to tell you, when Daniel ate the vegetables, did it say he lost weight? No, he was actually fatter in flesh. In essence, he was healthier. He had plumped out a little. Maybe the food was not uh, good nutrients from the king. So don't take what's in Daniel and use it just to lose weight. That's not the point. He did it to honor God. And when you honor God, I think a lesson is that you are healthier in body, mind, and spirit. I think that's the lesson to be able to take from there. But what did God do? God blessed them for remaining true to his word and equipped them for the work that was ahead of them. Verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God equipped them to such a degree that they were better than everybody else in that kingdom, in in how to think, in the wisdom of what to say at that time. And with Daniel, he also gave the gift of visions and dreams. Now, regarding this being equipped of being blessed we all want to be blessed by god don't we anybody not want to be blessed by god okay talk to me afterwards but but we want to be blessed by god but god also equips us for the work that is to do and think about these four youths they were behind enemy lines weren't they they were willing to go into a blast furnace Daniel would go into the lion's den. They all had their line in the sand, and they would not cross it, but God had equipped them for the work to do to be a light into Babylon. God blessed them so that they could do his work even when they were behind enemy lines. Okay, look. There's at least 10 more lessons In this chapter alone, we're not going to do all 10 lessons. As a matter of fact, we're going to stop here. But I hope you can see how many correlations there are from Daniel to our age right now about having an uncompromising faith, even when you're in a foreign culture, even when there's pressure to change your thinking to who you worship. What do we say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I will proclaim him day in and day out. I will be a lighthouse no matter where I am. I had a really interesting experience as the workers were uh, doing the, the outside, the gravel, the rocks. There was one worker, and I was just going out to see how they were doing. And I said hi, and he was talking about the schedules and stuff and said, well, we wouldn't be here Sunday. I said, well, come on, join us at 9.30. And so, you know, just jokingly. And uh, then we, he, that was just the opening that he needed. And so we started to talk about faith. And just recently he had become a Christian like two years after being the prodigal son. And so I got the gospel card, the, the bridge card. I said, could I share it with you? So I came in the church, got out. I shared the gospel with him front and back. And he said, that's, that's what I needed. He said, I needed to hear that. And then I asked, could I, could I pray with him? Could I even put my hand? And so I put my hand on him, and we prayed right outside the door here. Was I expecting to be that lighthouse at that time? No. But God has called and equipped us to be that, no matter where we are, to be the light of Christ in this world. So for you, Thinking about it, what does it mean for you to be a lighthouse? I'd like you to consider that. Not the church, because it's really you say, well, the church is to be a lighthouse. Not me, the church. But what does it mean for you to be a lighthouse? How have you been pressured to compromise following Jesus? And finally, are you willing to stand firm in your faith to draw that line in the sand in following Jesus, even under pressure. Those are the lessons from Daniel. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you are steadfast throughout all time. Help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be steadfast in our faith to be a light unto the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.